Spunk Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, a podcast where we look back at the decade and thereabouts that was the 1980s. This time around, we visit one of the first radio stations in the U.S. to have hip-hop in its regular rotation through the eyes of an intern, living and punking out right around the corner from CBGB's, trying to be punk in White House, Tennessee, trying to be punk as a dwarf, and trying to waltz while being a punk. But starting us off is a first crush and kiss in our favorite decade. I did have a crush on a guy named Sanchez Miller in the mm-hmm. 80s, a kid. He was actually my first kiss, actually. <gasps> Ooh, do tell. Okay, so <laughs> let's, let's back up. So when did you first notice him? Well, of course, we went to school together. We were in uh, kindergarten and first grade, you know. We attended the same church. So we did see a lot of each other. And when I think about it, you know, because I, I ended up, Marrying a quirky, nerdy guy. <laughs> I can see that. I never thought of I'm just blinded it, by his giant like, muscles. And yeah. the, <laughs> but really, underneath all those muscles, he really is a quirky, nerdy guy. So he Sa- was the nerd. So Ch- Sanchez Miller was the nerdy guy. Really? And he actually looked like the Martian from Bugs Bunny. That's what he looked like. <laughs> and he wore glasses. Wow, how'd you let him go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so he knew that you liked him, and he yes, we we actually we liked each other. How did you and let him know? Uh, at that time, I think we were let's see, nine years old. He says he hates me. Well, I say I hate him because he teases me all the time. Uh-huh, yeah, but um, that's we, our... just, we decided to get a little frisky during vacation Bible. School. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> so after. Father Abraham. Have many sons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We decided to go by the church and we shared our first kiss. Oh, like yeah. I mean, how, did he just like pull you back there or yeah. what? <laughs> we. It I, was a little plan, I think. Really? Yeah. Like whose plan was it? Come on. It was. It was details. I need details. He said, "Okay," and, and you know, I don't know what it is about vacation Bible school. The snacks are the greatest. Mm-hmm. After hot dogs uh-huh. and those little. Cookies that are shaped like daffodils with a hole in the middle. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you would stick your little finger in the yeah. hole and twirl yeah, yeah, yeah. them on your finger and then you eat them. You know, <laughs> he said, Well, I dare you, I dare you to meet me behind the church. And so I said, 
I'll meet your dinner. Okay? <laughs> so we went by the church and he kissed me on the cheek. Oh, it was really sweet. Was well, really how did sweet. you feel? Oh, it, <laughs> you know what? I just thought it was the coolest thing. Oh. I do remember that. And then after that, we never talked to each. I mean, it was it was like, oh, you know, okay, we kissed, we got that all out of the way. I guess it, it let go of all the tension. It was uh. like we completely forgot about oh. You think maybe in his mind it had built up, and yeah. when he finally got that kiss on the cheek, he was like, eh, she, yeah, she wasn't all that. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think it was that way for me on my part. Oh, really? Because <laughs> yeah. he was like, oh, like a fish coming in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> friends we really truly were we and it, you know that that adversarial relationship though we did continue mm -hmm. at school <laughs> do you know where sanchez is today he lives i believe the last time I, my dad told me that sanchez was married and living in tupelo mississippi okay but he's a wonderful artist okay. actually he's a wonderful artist One for the treble, two for the bass. Come on, David, let's rock this place. Back in the 80s, you got to work at a radio station, right? It was 85 and 86. A lot of people recall that um, America got hit with the, with the country music format when the movie Urban Cowboy came out. Sure. Well, then, right when that era died, it went from country and the first rap station, which is really considered urban contemporary, WUSL. Power 99 FM in Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, I mean, Philadelphia was a 67% black population. Mm -hmm. And the radio station that had been the number one station just before that was an adult contemporary. That's like easy listening, slow rock. Right. To yeah. give you an idea of how the market's needs weren't being met. Like air supply. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and something else that was odd, I grew up across the street from the radio station. Uh -huh. And I knew I needed an internship, and I didn't want to pay for it because I was, I was studying radio, television, and film at Temple University. And I just went to that radio station because it seemed like it was the right station at the right time. And I asked them if they'd give me an internship. And they gave me one, and I worked there for two years. And uh, was it black owned and operated? No, um, it was Lynn Broadcasting. There was a couple uh, blacks there in sales, and the DJs were black. Power 99 FM 440 Domino Lane, Philadelphia, 19128. And the nighttime, the night, the quiet storm format was uh, was a real sexy, sultry female voice. She was cool. Was she as sexy as she sounded? Oh yeah. Because yeah. you know, sometimes you hear people on the radio and they have, like, man, that guy sounds hot. And you look at him, he's just like a fat, pasty white guy or something. Yeah. Okay. No, not, not this one. No. Okay. I, I still remember her. If that gives you an idea. Okay. Oh wow, that's great. Yeah. Okay. yeah and that's cool. been uh, 35 years. By request of the power lines for Jenny in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Marvin in West Philly. Atlantic Star's Beautiful Secret Lovers on your station, Power 99 FM. What was your role as an intern at the station? First of all, I was, it was an AM-FM combination. It was right when the morning zoo for format started out, and uh, Stern had already been doing zoo format, and uh, so people were picking up on it left and right, and, um, and it was a, a very old radio station called WFIL, and Joey Bishop was a 1950s, 60 jock that he kind of got recycled. And he brought me in as Antony from South Philly. It's, yo, Antony, what are you doing? Come on, let's go. You know, so I, I, that was my role. Uh -huh. So you got to be on the air. So I was on the air as an intern. And then, but I was really there as a 
as a sales and marketing intern. And the men, wherever they took me for sales calls, they would introduce me as a the research specialist. It was cool. Yeah. And something else I'll never forget, and there were women who were sales execs, and they would introduce me as their intern. Uh, I always remembered that. Huh. So now, after that, whenever I had an intern, I'd always introduce them as something greater than the job really was, because uh, I remember how, that, how good that made me feel. Right, that's great. In fact, I just did that the other day, and that's been 35 years since then. Now thank DJ, MCs, cable TV, and radio station personalities for the new tunes we hear today, playing clear across the nation. And thank you for country, western funk, jazz, and death slow record of the past. You see, we're living in a time of rock and roll, hip-hop, new wave, and classical. It was just really fun party music, where everybody was happy. Yeah. And all the black artists, about the worst thing they sang about was pimping. Other than that, you wanted to play it at your party, and it was good for every demographic or, or every age group to listen to because it made you feel good. It was universal. That's the joy. These words be said. We want y'all to hear. We're gonna make a lot of sense. We're gonna make it clear. We're gonna rock this place. We're gonna do some class. We're gonna do our best. We're gonna make it last. We got drums. I remember the other day I was singing. I'm playing basketball. Yeah, Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow. And I said, hey, where is that from? And then, uh -huh. I, and then a buddy of mine told me who it was. And I said, that's right, it was Curtis Blow. Right, yeah. yeah. I was more of the, um, I wasn't the creative guy. Mm -hmm. Although I was fortunate enough to, to write commercials and write, write the advertising and do the voiceovers. Mm -hmm. And I was the marketing guy because I knew that's where you made the money. In that era, during the Reagan years, I mean, America was booming. Yeah. I mean, that was the culture. Not like it is now. Yeah. It's stagnant now. You know, uh, that administration made America feel good about themselves. It's funny, I was thinking about that just the other day. Barack Obama really admired Reagan, how he changed America. Yeah, he's mentioned in speeches. So it makes some Democrats a little uncomfortable, but it's true. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I was thinking about that the other day, and he knew how a president could change America through philosophy and, and ideology, but Reagan did it in such a way that everyone prospered, even the poor prospered. Because... Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the rising tide. The rising tide. Right, yeah. And then, I, and then I looked at now at how there is no prosperity, only with a very few people. Yeah. It's getting to be in smaller, smaller hands. Yeah, that's like another discussion of the, you know, the people who are try, try to make things equal and then making things more yeah. uh, unequal. Well, that, that's an economics. Well, that was one of the things about the 80s yeah. that, that was in the music also. You know what, that's, that's another thing I never thought of, how unoptimistic it is now. WUSL Philadelphia. Power 99 FM. That's how you write it. How did it make you feel like, say, you're on the street or you're, you're somewhere and you either hear the, the radio station that you interned for you know, being played or oh. you know, people just worshiping it? It was fun. It was fun, especially when um, uh, I'd write a commercial. The first commercial I ever wrote, and probably everyone who hears this has probably heard of Gino's and Pat's Steaks in Philadelphia. When I heard that on the radio, and wow. And in fact, just as an intern, I was getting uh, offers to work in different markets because no one had had urban contemporary experience. So I almost moved to Miami with just intern experience because a radio station's willing to uh, hire me. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Now, surely artists came in the station to you know, do interviews and Yeah, uh, you... uh, Teddy Pendergrass. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean yeah, that's not rap, but... Yeah. Well, yeah, I... that's soul. Yeah. 
and, and Teddy was always my, my, one of my favorite. Looks like another love TKO. You got to meet him? Or? Oh yeah, get to meet Teddy and uh, and Ashford and Simpson and um, Ashford and Simpson. Yeah, yeah. wow, they were great. It, That's what yeah. I always wonder about because they really seem to have loved each other. You, you rarely see that in the music industry where a couple, and I, I hope that it was true. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like it was. Now it's solid. days there wasn't enough rap to fill up yeah. a whole format so you had to fill it in with the soul and R&B which was always my favorite I would get tickets to everything so I'd, I, I remember I went to a Curtis Blow and I remember I went to a Beastie Boys and uh, something else that that was just absolutely amazing in, in, in the 80s the Philadelphia 76ers were a great team, and Julius Irving was still on the team, and Charles Barkley had been, been drafted, and the Sixers could not sell out the Spectrum in the 80s. So WUSL Power 99 was, the, was one of the major advertisers for the 76ers. And in those days, I would get 30, 40 tickets because there were so many tickets left over because nobody wanted them. Wow, those days are gone. Huh? Those days are gone, yeah. and uh, and I would go down there in 10, 15, 20 degrees temperature and stand out there in that cold and sell them for $8 a piece. <laughs> and, and that was kind of like how they paid me, because they worked me, and they gave me a lot of work to do. So you do that two, three times a, a week. There's 42 games a home season. That was making some serious money. And you're still hustling today. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. Imagine a lot of things you learned then. You, oh, yeah. You're now selling houses. Never stop. Yeah. You must spread the words of the master teacher. Or you die by the rhymes in the streets of each other. The words are a gift. We will never flaunt. That's why we're going to get everything we want. Like now, you, you mentioned you went to another radio station after Yeah, that? it was, um, the format was, uh, was a top 40. It was called WPST, Princeton, New Jersey. It was the largest medium-sized market in the country. And my goal was always to be a Princeton graduate. And I had to pay for it myself, so I had to go to Temple. So I went to Temple, which was an amazing school. And where do I end up? My first job? On the Princeton campus. It was so weird. Hmm. But that's when um, you know, I really perfected the job uh, in, you know, in the 80s of, of sales and marketing and writing. And at that station, did, did you also meet some of the, I guess, the top? John Bon Jovi, uh, John Bon Jovini, Jersey Boy, and that was like, but, yeah. but they would come in all the time, but that was the one of them. Yeah. This guy's got it going on. Uh -huh. Nice guy? Oh yeah, it's like the salt of the earth. You wouldn't know he was a, uh, a rock star. One of the other 80s memories I had was, uh, you know, I was a Temple student. Temple University in Philadelphia uh, was probably the number two highest rated university for radio, television, film, communications. I think NYU at the time was number one. Maybe Northwestern was. And I wasn't really sure on if I was going to go into technical or uh, the creative side or the business side because I had had the ability for both. And um, I, I hooked up with a, with a great rock, a really pretty amazing rock star from the 60s, early 70s. His name was Kit Stewart. Um, 
Uh, he had a band called the Kit Kats. His big hit was Let's Get Lost on a Country Road. having a, a child with his, with his daughter, which is the most amazing thing. You have this great rock and roll son now that would just blow your mind. It's, it's, and like, this wasn't it, like some scandal. It, it was, was like, just, she was 11 when I met her. I was teaching in a um, Greek Orthodox school. And, uh, and How then, old were you? I, gotta ask. I, was, I was in my 20s because I was just, I was out of the military. Uh-huh. And then when she turned like 21 or 22, I asked her out. Uh-huh. But oh, so you waited all that time? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, she really actually chased me all that time. Oh. But it was my best friend's daughter. And What did he think? He said to me, I was wondering when you were going to take her out. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you had his blessing? Yeah, I had his blessing. I asked him first. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Um, okay. The way you put it at first, it sounded really horrible. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't, okay, horrible. It wasn't horrible at all. Okay, good. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, I started videotaping him and, and his band, because his band was making a comeback. And back in those days, if you add 20 years on every era of music recycles. Mm. So back then, uh, the 50s and 60s was recycling. So I was doing videos of him and, uh, and his band and some other bands. And um, and then I said, you know, let me jump on this this punk rock scene in Philly. And, uh, and I had my camera and uh, I got invited to all these um, University of Pennsylvania parties uh, in basements in these old homes from the 19th century. And I, would, I walked into this one basement one night and it was an all midget punk <laughs> and there was the pot smoke in the basement was so dense it would burn your eyes and I'll never forget the screaming the hollering the the drummer he couldn't even play the bass drum because he could his feet his, his feet couldn't reach the pedals and I said wow I got this on video this is the most amazing thing well there was just more than one midget punk band really and I started going around videotaping midget punk bands I'm astounded. I, I thought I'd heard it all. <laughs> I mean, what could be more punk? Yeah, that's true. I mean, they weren't even trying. I mean, do you remember what they were singing about? It was always like sex and, and partying and okay. uh, and they don't care anymore uh-huh. and, uh, and, and and they're rebels and uh, they don't yeah. know why. And uh, <laughs> okay. But it was fun. I remember I was part of it in my Fiorucci jeans because uh-huh. that was the big gene back in those oh, days. Yeah, it, was yeah. a hot, it was a hot smoking gene. That and, and combat boots. And they were the combat boots that I got now the military with and they had been around the world. Wow. You actually earned them. I the pump it for your pump, pump. Back in 80s in Brooklyn. Yes, I did. Okay. Most of the people I talk to on, okay. on, the, on the podcast are like from the Midwest, from the South, you know, not even near cities. And so, you know, when they heard about New York, obviously because of the music videos or, yeah. you know, the, the uh, maybe the magazines and that type of thing. So it was really just a place that didn't really exist except in our yeah. imagination yeah. and all that. So, I mean, what was it like living there? Was it as great as all that? I'm so glad I grew up in Brooklyn and New York. 
Totally. Because when I was little, mm-hmm. before the 80s, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> my mom would take us into the city, especially on birthdays. She would take us into Washington Square Park. My mom worked in Manhattan. She would take us into the city central park. I mean, I just grew up with just amazing culture. You know, going to Broadway shows when I was young, that was our birthday right. treat every year. And so, but yeah. just growing up in New York was fantastic. Bones on the sidewalk, garbage in the street, abandoned buildings, bricks and concrete. The ladies on the corner are selling that body, and everybody wants a part in that party. Well, let me ask you that New York also had a negative side to it, you know, the crime and, and some of the blight and things of that nature. Did you see that growing up, or was that not near where you were? Um, I guess I just always grew up kind of street savvy, mm-hmm. you know. I, I always walked to school in Brooklyn by myself. And it's not that I didn't have some incidences here and there, but in general, I think growing up in New York, a kid can have the opportunity to get kind of sophisticated very young and and street savvy and street smarts and I'm grateful for that you know so yeah it was not a safe place but you learned that kind of early on so you learned how to navigate through through the city and yet I always felt safe I would ride the subway like one two in the morning I don't know I was kind of like I just had eyes in the back of my head I I was always on the lookout especially when I lived in Manhattan because I lived in the East Village at some point I ended up for 13 years and and it was not gentrified then so it was like you didn't go you knew where you didn't go you're not going past Avenue A you don't go into Harlem it was just too risky and then of course if you were gay you couldn't even go into the West Village, I remember, or certain areas where you would you would get beat up. I mean, it was unfortunate, you know. I mean, a lot of my friends got beat up just for being gay walking in the village. So Beat up by who? Just beat up by, like, you know, people who didn't like gay people. I mean, you know, it was just... The city was tough. And yeah. especially, I hate to say, because I, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn with... It was such a mixed bag, but, like... I don't know, the Italians were very protective of their neighborhood. People were protective of their neighborhoods. Yeah. So even though everybody somehow managed to get along, it was still kind of segregated in its own little strange way. So you knew uh, you were risking it if you walked into certain neighborhoods because of just certain belief systems kind of mm-hmm. prevailing. You know what I mean? Right. So. But on the positive yeah. side, yeah. New York was home to a lot of music. Oh my God. I was a musician. I was playing out by the time I was 16 in little cheese and wine clubs in New York City, in Brooklyn. And, I mean, so with the 80s music, which especially the pop and the new wave and all that, had a specific kind of sound. Did, did you try to emulate that? I mean, were you into that? I was in a punk band. Oh, you were in a I, punk band? Okay. I, was, I played bass in a punk band, yeah. the New Seeds. And we played the clubs like CBGB's and we cut a 45 and we played Max's Kansas City and so the song that we cut was Witness to the Death of Life which was the lead singer wrote it and it was based on Nietzsche and the second the other side was Great Men of Rationalization. Did you all have like a little following or success? Or? Uh, well, our friends were our <laughs> following. I had the biggest, I had a bass amp bigger than me and a, and a small bass guitar and the drummer wasn't so thrilled about having a girl bass player, but I was yeah. good. 
CBGB's is like legendary, especially yeah. in Yeah, I used to, used to live around the corner from there, so I would always go there. So I mean, yeah, talk about that. company producers, and, and I don't remember who I, specifically in CBGB's, but I remember seeing in all the small clubs, the, this is who I saw, I saw The Clash, I remember The Palladium and The Police, their first time coming to the States at the Palladium on 14th Street. I saw the Talking Heads at the Mud Club, which was a tiny club. I saw um, the B-52s at Irving Plaza. I saw like all the 80s bands when they first showed up. Uh, did I saw you interact them. with any of them? Well, one of my friends was friends with the Talking Heads. He went to Brown and he was part of that clique. They all used to live in some loft together. But I was not, I didn't really know personally any of those bands. But in the neighborhood I lived, I first I lived in the city in um, Gramercy Park on 21st, between 2nd and 3rd. And then I moved to Park Slope, which was when I was in the punk band. Then I moved back to Manhattan. I lived in uh, the East Village on 5th Street between 1st and 2nd, where they filmed Kojak across. I always saw them filming uh, Kojak, the uh -huh. TV show, because it was exactly across from me, the police station. At that point, I mean, people would actually get shot on my corner in like the, the okay. you would hear a gunshot and something. So it was there. rough. Yeah, okay, I was rough, so but I was never scared because I lived across from the police station. Oh. I don't know why. <laughs> I never felt scared going home to my block except when there was a crack house in the bottom on the first floor and then I would have to go across the street, tell them I don't want to go into my building alone and I'd make them walk me into my building. And they finally got the crack house out of the first floor, but uh, <laughs> I don't know why I was never scared. I love living there. And so John Lurie, the lounge lizards. On St. Mark's Place at that time, they had Amos Poe, all these filmmakers were up and coming and they were showing their first films. And Jim Jarmusch, I saw his first films. That started right before I moved into the East Village because I used to walk down from when I lived in Gramercy Park, I'd get all kind of dressed up like a movie star to walk over to see their films. And I remember it was a German filmmaker at the time. He came over and he goes, oh, are you a, are you a famous actress? Because I used to get all dressed up like I was some kind of like famous person or something. So that was on St. Mark's Place. And I used to go hang out there and watch film because I love film. And then John Laurie used to do all the soundtrack for Jim Jarmusch's film. He was always in the neighborhood hanging out. And then it was Cage was always in the neighborhood hanging out. And Elizabeth Suedo was always in the neighborhood hanging out. And then I remember Madonna filming Desperately Seeking Susan walking by in her underwear hanging out. Man, some witch steals my clothes. Iku gets pushed out of hotel window and now you get fired. No offense, but bad luck really seems to be following you around. It was a parade. My mother used to come love to visit me. We'd sit in the cafe on the corner, the coffee shop. It was a Greek coffee shop, which at four in the morning after a gig, I would be there eating a bran muffin with my friends. And it was like a constant, you know, it was like all these famous people were always in the Greek coffee shop or walking by. It was like the hub. It was where everybody lived. And then that whole neighborhood became a mecca for small art galleries at some point. And then you had Keith Haring was, you know, drawing on the sidewalks, and Penny Scharf, Schnabel, um, and then Cindy Sherman also. I remember all of these artists, you know, at that point in time. And I was always reading Interview Magazine. And I, my good friend in New York, who still lives there, she was an art teacher. 
and she was good friends with the whole Andy Warhol crowd, and, and through her I got introduced to, but later on, not in the 80s, but later on I got introduced to, he painted everything silver at the factory. Oh my God, what's his name? I can't believe it. He's so famous. I'm getting old. I'm losing my memory a little yeah, bit. <laughs> Did you feel like it was a very fertile time? Oh my God, it was fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, and I was designing by day. I didn't even question it. I was just drawn to that neighborhood. Oh, and then Patricia Field on St. Mark's Place, the clothing store. Oh, talk about fashion. And then, they, and I just heard that it was going out of business was um, Trash and Vaudeville. All these really cool, like, punk and just really great boutiques mm -hmm. and designers who were doing rock and roll fashion on St. Mark's Place, all their shops. But all that's gone now, right? And pretty much. It's all like a whole... I know CBGB's is now like a clothes store. Yeah, it's a clothing store. Thank God they left the walls. I was glad to see that at least, and all the writing on the walls. Like, you know, I mentioned that, you know, in the 80s is kind of when I came into my punk rock identity. And there were like, um, you know, maybe three, four, five other kids at White House that kind of came into White House, Tennessee. Too. Yeah. Right. Some of us were already friends, and then others became friends because as we all kind of discovered punk rock. And one of the guys that moved to town, he was a guy named Eddie. He became kind of legendary as just this you know, crazy, obnoxious skater. That, who's now he's like a family man in the military and stuff in Arizona. But you know, he was one of the guys I hung out with there. And uh, you know, we we come up to Nashville and you know hang out in Dragon Park and everything. And you know, that's where we met ever, all these other punk rockers. But sometimes you know we'd just be kind of stuck in White House and we wouldn't go anywhere. And we, yeah, you know, my father was never home, and my mother was she was in a nursing home by that point. She had she had cancer, so. A lot of times I was left to my own devices. I guess if Dad was lucky I was as good a kid as I was because I didn't get, I didn't do a lot of drugs or anything. But some of my friends did drink a lot, and Eddie was Eddie was drinking one night, and uh, we were going somewhere, and I can't remember what happened, but we were several miles from my house in White House. I mean, it was maybe probably about only about three four miles because it's not that big a town, and somehow he was in the car and he got mad about something, and you know there's a car full of us. I was driving, and he's like. Let me out of the car right now. I was like, no, you're crazy. You aren't going to walk in. It was like in the middle of the night. He was, no, I mean it. Let me out right now. Just got so freaking mad. So finally, I was pulled over and said, okay. And he got out of the car, slammed the door, and started walking away. And I was just like, and I was like hey, you coming? You getting back in the car? You coming? Or whatever. And he was like, no, you know, you know, F you or what. I can't remember if you cussed me or what, but he was pretty mad. So finally, just, so just drove off. <laughs> and I forget we went somewhere. We went back to the house. And I, he, I guess he was pretty fast because he had all, he got there almost as quick as we did. Wow. I wasn't in the car very long. I was back in my dad room doing something. I remember I was bent down organizing something or whatever. The next thing I know, a box of cassette tapes is flying through the air and hits me in the head. No kidding. <laughs> Eddie is, is, come, is back through the house. <laughs> He's at my bedroom door and he threw that at me. And I go, what'd you do that for? He goes, because you left me on the side of the road. <laughs> He, he told you to. <laughs> exactly. That's what I said. He goes, he goes well, you should know better. <laughs> Were they good cassettes? Ah, you know, some of them probably. Another one was damaged. Not even my head, you know. Oh, so. that's good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, how was your head? I forgot oh, to ask. Oh, it was fine, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
was trying to find my way through it, and I, I'll never forget, I saw this black dog with a white three spray painted on his side <laughs> because Daryl Earnhardt had been killed like the day before <laughs> in the accident. There's a memorial on this poor dog. Wow. <laughs> So you went to a punk concert in Nashville at the Cannery. Right, and it was supposed to be like four or five bands that were playing. Do you remember any of the bands that played? I don't remember if F-U-C-T was going to play that night or if I was sort of... It was a long time ago. Right, right. <laughs> So I don't remember who else was playing, but it was like, you know, five or six band lineup. And the first band, it wasn't like the crowd said, we don't like these guys, but it was obviously nobody liked them. And so... Where, uh, where would have been a mosh pit that was just empty floor. Like every, it was actually like a square, not just a circle, but like a square of people not in front of the stage. Uh -huh. And these guys were pouring their hearts out, and nobody would even like nod their heads to the rhythm, were, just waiting for the next band to come on. Were they not very good? Honestly, I, did, I was such a poser, I didn't think any of the bands were good, but I was just showing up because, you know, yeah. you could get like a $5 ticket and be inside for you know, four or five hours. But anyway, so there's this wide open space in front of the stage. These guys are playing. And I turned to my friend and said, would you like to waltz? And he said, why, yes, I would. And he bowed and I bowed. And we waltzed around what would have been the mosh pit, like all the way in a circle once and then went right back in. I don't remember if we got applause, but I felt like we did. I'm applauding for you now. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank all our 1980s witnesses, including Kelly Harris, Anthony Cherry, Carrie Mills, Kat Taylor, and Shana Konstam. Be sure to check out previous installments of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill and our other 80s podcast, Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Mm -hmm.